Good morning, everybody. Welcome in. Thanks for joining us for a backpatting edition of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. Pat yourself on the back. It's Friday. Yeah, he's in control uh, all the other days, too, but it just feels really good when he's in control on Friday, doesn't it? Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference, and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. Also serve as Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and I'm currently the interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville. So if you don't have a church home, somewhere where you worship regularly, come and see us on Sunday. 10.30 in the morning, that's when we worship. Okay, um, one, of the, one of the goals of this program has always been to kind of look behind the curtain and see if I can help people understand things that are happening in the country and in the culture and in the economy. And, and one of the reasons I like that so much is because I just like to do it for my own benefit. I mean, I see stuff happening and then I, 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 the stuff that's, uh, that I see happening doesn't match up with the stuff that I'm reading coming out from government reports. And it'd be easy just to say, well, that's simple. The government's lying to you. And well, well, I get it. I mean, I, I, I think that's uh, probably as sure as the sun came up this morning. But I also know that not everything that comes out Every piece of information is is not false. So how do you reconcile the fact that the economy added well over 500,000 jobs last month and that, in fact, we've added 1.1 million jobs over the past three months and January, January was just kind of the culmination of this hiring boom. We've got him unemployment down to 3.4%. So when you look at the economy, then then you hear these stories, right? Uh, Disney yesterday announced they're going to lay off 7,000 workers. Most of them are going to be in the Disney Plus and entertainment end, uh, end of the business because Disney Plus, for the first time now, is losing more subscribers than they're gaining. Now, they've, they've still got a bajillion subscribers, so it's not like they're going to crash and burn anytime soon. But it's never good when you start losing people off of a subscriber network. I mean, that's uh, you always want to be adding or breaking even. or But when you start backing up, that's a sign of real problems. So they're, they're taking a look at Hulu, you know, they, Disney plus Hulu. They may, they may jettison the Hulu part. They haven't made that decision yet. But they have announced that there's going to be at least 7,000 workers that are going to be laid off. Now, that follows announcements by other major employers, Amazon, Google. I mean, there's people laying the, – the big employers are laying people off left and right, and yet we get a jobs report in January that says, oh, we, we, we've, we've created over 500,000 jobs, the economy did, and the employment, unemployment rate's down to a 30-year low. How is that possible? Well, driving the jobs boom, according to the Wall Street Journal, are big segments of the economy that a lot of time get a lot of times get overlooked. So if you if you look at the tech sector, 
you see layoffs, cutbacks. If you look at the service industry, uh, when it comes to when I say service, I probably that's probably a mischaracterization. I'm thinking about Amazon in serving the needs of you know you go on Amazon, order stuff, it gets delivered. But you you look at companies like that and it layoffs are the order of the day. But you look at restaurants, hospitals, nursing homes, and child care facilities. Just those four things. If you look at how much they've been ramping up in these last several months, you begin to understand how we've got a jobs hiring boom at the same time that another segment of the economy is laying off a, p- a bunch of people. And, and essentially what's happening, according to the Wall Street Journal, is that these type businesses are starting to staff up as they enter the last stage of the pandemic recovery. You know, we, we, we tend to think when we stop thinking about the pandemic, when we stop wearing masks, when, when we stop uh, thinking, am I going to get another booster shot, uh, when we start, stop running for the high grass every time somebody coughs, or we try to find a way to dive out of an elevator if somebody's got the sniffles. I mean, once we stop all that stuff, we think, okay, the pandemic's over. Everybody's back to normal. Well, it doesn't work that way in the economy, and particularly not in business, because you, you've got to – the hiring process takes time. And with the number of people that were laid off during the pandemic, I mean millions upon millions of people – and then we went through this period where a lot of people were just staying home. They got frustrated. They got tired of looking for jobs. They were getting a government check, so they stayed home, didn't do anything. Or they started working for home, from home. Somehow they got permission to do that if their job allowed that to be a thing. Well, we've kind of sifted through now. It took time for all the government checks to stop. It took time for people to blow through their COVID savings. You know, a lot of people got, based on the number of kids in their family, they got pretty big checks from the government, just COVID checks. And for some people, it was enough for them to, if they got laid off, well, we're not going to worry about it for a few months. We'll live off this money, and then we'll worry about finding a job. Well, all of that is done, and so people are having to go back to work. And the businesses that are ramping up the fastest, that are not affected so much by, um, you know, some of the some of the economic headwinds that we're experiencing right now, those businesses are beginning to hire, and they're hiring at a high rate. Now, another thing that's made that possible, and I don't know how this bodes for the long run, because it does add to inflation. One of the reasons that we're not talking about that we've got an inflation problem is because restaurants, nursing homes, hospitals, child care care centers are all raising their rates for for hiring workers. A lot of these sectors of the economy have gone from $11 an hour to $15 an hour. Some are up to $18 an hour. And so when you start paying that kind of money, you got somebody at home sitting on the couch, their COVID money's about to run out, and they're looking around and they're going, you know, I guess I'm going to have to go back to work. I really don't want to, but uh, gee, look at this. This uh, this restaurant over here, you know, 
Tipsy Taco, and I just picked that out of the top of my head. I have no idea what Tipsy Taco pays, but because t- I just think the name's cool. But Tipsy Taco over here, they're they're paying eighteen bucks an hour plus tips, or they're playing paying twelve bucks an hour plus tips, or they're doing, and all of a sudden it it pays people to get up off the couch, and you know turn off the streaming services, and go get a job. And that's happening mostly in the restaurant, childcare, all the stuff that I just mentioned, as people are really beginning to hire in those areas as they sort of recover fully from the pandemic. Uh, employers in healthcare, education, leisure, and hospitality, and other services, such as dry cleaning and automotive repair, account for about 36% of all private sector payrolls. Together, those service industries added 1.19 million jobs over the past six months, accounting for 63% of all of the private sector job gains during that time, up from 47% in the preceding year and a half. By comparison, the tech-heavy information sector, which shed jobs for two straight months, makes up 2% of the private sector jobs. So even though they're big in the headlines, and even though we think a lot about the tech sector, it's only 2% of the people that are working. And so when 2% start getting laid off, a certain portion of that 2%, even though it may be a high portion for a particular company, it doesn't affect the economy as much as 63% of, or, or excuse me, 36% of uh, businesses affect on the economy as they begin to ramp up hiring. So the Wall Street Journal predicts that what may very well keep us out of a recession is these industries that I've named because they're not expected to slow down on their hiring until maybe into next year. And so if we go all the way through 2023 with robust hiring in that sector of the economy, it will offset the layoffs that are happening in the other part of the economy, particularly the tech sector. And we'll see, we'll be able to avoid just a, you know, a a recession. So I thought that was interesting. Um, it's amazing. One of the amazing things about the United States is how, how pliable and how resilient our economy is. I mean, when the rest of the world begins to waver, teeter, then the United States, yeah, we, we've got problems in certain sectors, but the economy is so diverse and so spread out that we can absorb a recession in one part of the economy by having an overabundance of production, building, hiring, and so forth in another section of the economy. And so that that sort of evens out, and it, it doesn't really recession-proof the United States, but it makes it more difficult for us to enter into a recession. Um, all right. You know, if you want to really tick off a leftist, if you want to get them to respond to you and get into a big argument— Just suggest to them that the FBI is targeting religious traditionalists or that the FBI is being weaponized by the Biden administration to go against people that it disagrees with. I mean, if you really want to get a debate started, because that will, you know, I've just discovered that if, if I say that in a particular crowd, I mean, you'll get the eye roll, you'll get people just jacked up against you pretty quickly. 
And what's interesting is that the evidence that that is exactly what the FBI doing is doing is abundant. Let me give you an example. The Richmond office of the FBI prepared a memo on what it called radical traditionalist Catholics. Okay, this is targeting a religious group, not just a a, a, a fringe or a you know some type of wacko religious group that re, you know recruits people and goes hide in a mountain cave somewhere and waiting for the end of the world. Now we're talking about traditional Catholics that have been referred to now as radical traditionalist Catholics, RTCs for short. And the FBI says they pose a, a, a threat, a clear and present danger. Um, these RTCs were described, this is coming from um, National Review, by the way. These RTCs were described in the memo as an extremist subset among those Catholics who reject the Second Vatican Council's authority and who attend the traditional Latin Mass. You know, there's been a, a rise recently within the Catholic Church of people returning to the Latin Mass. There's, they've always been, that's always been a thing, kind of a divide, but it's sort of picked up a little bit of steam in the last several years, and a lot of people think it's because people are looking for traditional things in a culture that's pretty much lost its ever-loving mind. So as the culture drifts further, excuse me, drifts, as the culture charges farther and farther away from traditional ideas and thoughts, people begin to look for safe harbors. And for some, that's retreating back into the comfort of the traditional Latin mass, particularly in the Catholic Church. But until recently, a group defined this, loose, this loosely would include scores of thousands of people across the United States, though the memo attempts to differentiate the mere traditionalists from the radicals. The memo, the memo accuses Catholics of, listen, listen to this, what, what the Catholic Church is being accused of, adherence to anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant, and anti-LGBTQ and white supremacist ideology. See, if, if you want reasonable immigration, if you want anything other than wide open borders, then it's probably because you're a white supremacist and, and they begin, the government be, begins to ascribe motivations to you that hadn't even entered your mind. I mean, that you've never really considered. All you want is a reasonable policy on the border so we don't have millions of people, five million under the Biden administration, walking across and we're trying to figure out what to do about it. So this idea that that makes you a white supremacist because you're concerned about it, it's ridiculous. It's not possible to be concerned about illegal immigrants coming in, fentanyl crossing the border. I mean, people on the terrorist watch list being picked up with fair regularity. I mean, that all of those things are concerns when a country doesn't secure its border. It doesn't have anything to do with racism. And of course, the Catholic Church, particularly traditionalist Catholics, are going to be opposed to LGBTQ rights and movement, because the Bible is very clear about sexuality. God created it, and we've tried to recreate it, not in God's image, but in man's image, fallen man's image. And so it, when the Catholic Church stands up and says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, you, 
you can't, these are not things that you can embrace. Why would that be considered radical? It's not radical according to their own doctrine and teaching. It's in line with that teaching. So this idea of, of what the Biden administration is doing is trying to, to characterize all Christian thought as being radical because it doesn't conform to a woke ideology that's taken over the progressive wing of the party. I mean, come on. And this is, this is what we're seeing with this memo from the FBI. It contains several references to Catholic hostility to abortion rights. What Catholic hostility to abortion rights? The Catholic Church is pro-life. The Catholic Church is unapologetically and has been from way before Roe versus Wade, but certainly were the first ones out of the gate after Roe versus Wade was was decided to push back against it because of the doctrine and the teaching of the church. This is this memo, this FBI call to go after traditionalist Catholics to call for infiltration of their masses. I mean, you realize when the FBI puts out a memo and says, "Well, we're going to uh we're, we're going to put some spies. We're going to recruit some people within the Catholic Church to tattle." You realize that's what the Soviets did. How did they control religion? How did they shut down the free expression of Christianity? How did the Russian Orthodox Church push traditional evangelicalism out? in Russia. They put people in the churches to tell on their neighbors. The FBI is talking about doing this very thing. That's about as un-American as you can get. It contains several references to Catholic hostility to abortion. It recommended with some optimism that containing the threat posed by such Catholics can be accomplished by cultivating sources and assets within the Catholic Church itself. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to find some people that want to tattle. We're going to find some people that are left-wing, even in the traditionalist Catholic church, and if we can't find them, we'll just plant them. We'll put them in there. National Review says the memo is an ugly slander of a small but surprisingly prominent religious minority. The research for the memo was based on clickbait articles, listen to this, from Salon, The Atlantic, and the Southern Poverty Law Center. I mean, you put those three together, and you talk about misinformation and disinformation, they exist to portray religious and conservative individuals in this country as people that should be locked up. And look, they're, they're private. That's private publications. Uh, they can say what they want to say. But when the FBI, a, a government agency that is entrusted with investigations and law enforcement, when they begin to embrace this conspiracy theory nonsense against a particular segment of people in this country who happen to be Catholic and happen to be traditionalist and happen to believe that life begins at conception and that God made sexuality for a purpose, and because we're created in his image, we're not supposed to recreate sexuality in the image of, fallen, of the fallen world. And they think that's, the FBI thinks that's, that's a reason to go after them. The auth authors of the memo show little ability or interest in distinguishing between heated pop populist rhetoric, which is common in democracies, and conspiratorial intention, which is rare. 
By identifying traditional as Catholic opposition to abortion or certain priorities of the LGBT community as evidence of a potential threat, it was doing the opposite of intelligence work. Careful research is supposed to narrow the focus of law enforcement to the tiny numbers of groups and individuals that are a danger. By choosing beliefs that are obliged in a religious communion of one billion people worldwide and shared by billions of other humans worldwide, the report becomes a slander. That's exactly what it is. That's why I like National Review so much. They go straight to the heart of the matter. This is the FBI, the federal government, picking a side against religion and using the FBI as a weapon to shut down people that disagree with them. Now, after this was brought to light, after this you know, became a cause celeb, um, the FBI pulled back the memo. It retracted the memo and released a statement saying that it never should have been written, that it's an embarrassment to law enforcement and reflective of serious problems in the intelligence community. Now, that's not what the FBI said. That's what National Review said about it. But they did. that's absolutely true, and they did retract it because of the pressure that was brought to bear. That's why we've got to pay attention to this stuff. I mean, if can you imagine if everybody just went, ho-hum, it's another um, memo from the FBI attacking religious people. That's like another touchdown pass by Tom Brady. I mean, it's just it just comes with the season. I, we, we, we really can't allow that to happen. We have to push back. We have to be aware of what's going on in our world. And just because, you know, the Democrats and progressives, although I repeat myself, yowl and cry and pitch a fit because they say, oh, you you conservatives, you religious traditionalists, all you're doing is demonizing the good people of the FBI. What happened? We thought you were in favor of law enforcement. Here you are coming. No, 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 no. What we're in favor of is a federal bureau of investigation that goes after the bad guys protects the good guys, and knows the difference. We'll have uh, Senator Josh Kimbrell coming up here in just a few minutes. I think he's calling in at 745, which gives me just enough time to talk about Rihanna. Now, I usually don't talk about pop culture because I don't know anything about it. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I just don't follow the garbage that's out there in pop culture that much. I mean, if something... Major happens, like if the Grammy Awards turn into an opportunity to worship the devil, um, I'll take a little bit of time and talk about that because I think it's significant. Uh, but normally, I mean, what what the, the this group is doing or that person's doing or that singer said last or who she kissed on the mouth, I mean, you know, all that stuff, I, I expect it to be pretty much like a sewer. So I, I, I don't, I just kind of wave my hand. But this caught my attention because Rihanna's doing the Super Bowl, right? I mean, she's they've um, I, was, I saw a headline of a story that they've got like thirty nine different they've gone through thirty nine different versions of her halftime performance. Meaning, I guess they can't make up their mind about how vulgar she's going to be. They, they just keep swinging back and forth. Yeah, but um, the interesting thing about Rihanna is that she's been very public about her pregnancy and she's an abortionist she's an abortion activist i mean she goes out of her way to attack people that defend the right to life 
and talk about that, you know, how wonderful it is. Uh, well, Kate Jerkovich, writing at, uh, at the Daily Wire today, says, Abortion activist singer Rihanna spoke on Thursday about the wonders of motherhood during a press event for Super Bowl for the Super Bowl's coverage ahead of her headlining the halftime show in Arizona. During Apple Music's Nadeska Alexis event, the 34-year-old singer explained that she was initially hesitant about taking on the Super Bowl halftime show only a few months after having a child with rapper um, ASAP Rocky. <laughs> See, I can't. I don't know who these people are. In May 2022, you know, Rocky for me is the first movie that Denise and I went to when we started dating. Okay, I don't know who this other Rocky guy is, but anyway, that she decided it was important to do the halftime show. So she's, but she said this. She said, when you become a mom, there's something that just happens where you feel like you could take on the world. You can do anything. The Super Bowl is one of the biggest stages of the world. So as scary as that was, because I haven't been on stage in seven years, there's something exhilarating about the challenge of it all. And it's important for me to do this year, she said. It's important for representation, for my son to see that. Rihanna was born in Barbados. So she's you know, saying that her heritage, the fact that she's been uh, risen to a position where she could do this is an important thing for her son, newly born, to know that she did in sort of promoting diversity in, in a culture that welcomes everybody. In January 2022, the couple announced they were expecting their first child together. Later, Rihanna made numerous headlines with what she called her rebellious maternity style and admitted she had basically challenged herself to push it further than anyone had ever done with by burying her belly. I mean, she was just out there. You, I don't know if you saw the pictures. Uh, like, I, I, I would go to a website and there would be, I'd be looking for a story, and here she is with her, you know, with her belly. And look, um, okay, you know, pregnancy is beautiful. I think some of the most, the, the times when I've seen my wife the most radiant is when she was pregnant with our children. And now I see the same thing in our daughters, in our daughter-in-law. I mean, they just, there's an air about a woman who is pregnant and understands the gift, the wonderful gift that life is, that she, she just radiates the gift that she's been given to give life, which to me, all women should cherish. But months later, after she's you know, celebrated this fact that she's going to have a baby. She was featured on the cover of the May Vogue issue um, in, in saying that this child is going to teach me more than she could ever teach them, so she's looking forward to it. But then she publicly bashed Republicans in Alabama in 2019 for passing pro-life legislation, the Human Life Protection Act, that outlaws most abortions with an exception for a mother's life being at risk. In 2012, she founded the nonprofit organization, the Clara Lionel Foundation, and it's been working in tandem with Planned Parenthood, which is the largest providers of abortions in the country. So why am I telling you this? Because there's a, there, there is a disconnect in the mind of a lot of these stars, these people that we 
bestow fame upon because they can sing or act in a particular way in public or they're they they're beautiful or whatever there's a disconnect between reality for them and the things that they project because they live in a culture that puts pressure on them to embrace certain ideas i mean how can the same person celebrate the way rihanna has celebrated the birth of her child and she talks about it all the time when she's out at the same time telling women that they should abort their babies and no it's not about her saying well they've got the right to make a, the right to make a different decision her stand on abortion has been decidedly on the pro death side so where's the disconnect you know there's a there, there's something missing between the heart and the head here where she can look at a child and have a feeling that only a mother can feel, but then turn right around and say, well, mothers ought to be able to go out and kill their, kill their babies, even though this is everything about this has been beautiful. Everything about it has been beneficial. So why would a woman need to have an abortion? If the blessing of a child is greater than all these other things that can be a challenge for pregnancy, why would you advocate for people to kill their babies? You know, the image of God that dwells in each person rises to the surface from time to time. It may, Maybe a person won't acknowledge it. They won't give glory to God. That, isn't that what Romans said, Paul said? They know God, but they refuse to glorify him. In other words, creation itself reveals the beauty and the majesty of what God has done. And when a woman gets pregnant, the beauty and majesty of the gift of life that she's been given to, to bear a child, that if, if you don't make the connection between the creator and the event, then the morality of it all gets lost. It makes you schizophrenic. It makes Rihanna be able to say, wow, look at this. Look at the beauty of pregnancy. Look at the beauty of my child. And then turn right around and say, but you go out and kill yours. It's, it's a major break in the circuitry when it comes to morality. And it's because they don't connect the dots between the value of life. See, that's why we can't just run around and tell people life is precious. We have to tell them why life is precious. We have to make the connection for them that the beauty of that pregnancy is tied to the gift of God and to what God has done in our world. You know how the left has trigger words, like there's certain things you can't say because it triggers them. Snow's a trigger word for Gary Miller. I mean, hey. you get the word snow in there. And he's he's over here pointing at me going, see, see, it's going to snow Sunday. They're talking about snow with the rain and the snow in the... And I'm like, no accumulation, mm -hmm. snowburst. What, what the heck is a snowburst? You'll find out when okay. the snowball okay. comes flying over your way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, uh, Senator Kimbrough's calling in right now, so... I was I was actually just kind of treading water there, <laughs> Bu building that uh, slushy snow while I was waiting for him to call in here. All right, uh, Friday morning, our visit with uh, Senator Kimbrell. Good morning, Senator. How are you, sir? 
Good morning, Tony. Good to, good to talk to you. Happy Friday. Yeah, happy Friday to you. Give us a little uh, recap of Columbia this week. Tell us the highs and the lows in the Senate. You mean besides the fact that it was a week of absolute craziness? That besides that, man, I tell you what, uh, it really it was it was pretty crazy. Honestly, I was down there every day except yesterday, and I really should have been down there yesterday testifying about the Blaine Amendment. But I got to be honest, the Speaker of the House did such an incredible job, and my good friend Michael Aguiliana from the Catholic Diocese. I mean, I watched it, the testimony of the subcommittee, and. It was uh, they devastated the history of the Blaine Amendment. They devastated it yesterday in in front of the committee. So I didn't have well, to. The be Blaine Amendment is nothing other than an anti-Catholic bigotry that's been baked into the state constitution and ought to be stripped out. And I'm proud the speaker's doing it, and I support the effort wholeheartedly. Absolutely. All right, the Senate this week. Let's talk about that. So well, we did pass a heartbeat bill fix. You know, we talked this about this was coming, right? And it, it, it's now it's now come and gone. We we passed an improved heartbeat bill. And I know people are like, okay, why are we doing this again? What in the world's happening? Well, it's because, of course, in January, the state court invalidated the last one with Kay Hearn being on the court. Well, thank, good, thank goodness. On Wednesday, we were able to successfully install my friend Gary Hill to be the next associate justice of the state Supreme Court. I think he was sworn in yesterday. So now we have a new associate justice of the state Supreme Court who's a constitutionalist a strict constructionist, and I think will do a good job like John Kittredge has done. So what we're trying to do now is get a new heartbeat bill with all striking out the conflicting language, taking out the conflicting language in the uh, prior law, and reinstituting a heartbeat bill that can go back to the court for review, and I believe be upheld so we can stop being a 20-week abortion destination state. That's what we did uh, really Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all three days we worked on it. We finished it yesterday evening. And the Senate did pass a clean heartbeat bill. Now, I know uh, I've taken a little heat from people because I did try to kill an amendment. I did kill, help kill an amendment that Senator Cash of Anderson put forward. And I, lo- I like Richard, and we and I agree on life and conception. But we, we know we don't have the votes in the Senate right now. In spite of my frustration, I'm frustrated by it. We don't have the votes to get a conception ban in the Senate. And if we make the perfect the enemy the good and keep trying to get a conception ban instead of reinstituting heartbeat. We're going to remain a 20-week abortion state till 2025, and that means our numbers on abortion have gone to you know, give or take three to 400 a week to over 1,000 a week now because of our being an abortion tourist state because of this 20-week position. And we've got to stop that. And so reinstituting heartbeat would bring the numbers down by at least 700 a month and save eight, eight 9,000 lives a year, cut our abortion rate by more than 50%. And I'm determined to do that until we can get a conception ban, but I do support but. I also don't believe we can pass it until after the elections next time. We have some primaries, and frankly, a few senators are replaced. So for now, I'm, I'm hopeful that the House will take this up, Tony. I, 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 we worked really hard to get it out clean. I've had some conversations with House colleagues. I want them to pass the heartbeat bill fix, and let's try to go back down to six weeks. And they keep working at it. We don't stop there, but let's at least do that now and save lives. Well, let me tell you something that happened to the Baptist barbecue um, on Wednesday that – you know, was kind of a, a, a humorous exchange between me and Senator Brad. You mean Hutto. besides? The, you mean besides the fact that I called it the Baptist beer being sweet tea? 
<laughs> yes. Besides that, which was a, which was a great moment, by the way, he did. Senator Kimball did say that sweet tea was the Baptist beer. And you know what? That, that's okay because you can have all the sweet tea you want. You don't have to worry about becoming intoxicated. Now you might die of carotid arteries, or you might or have diabetes, diabetes you know, like or something that, yeah. like that. But you're not going to be you're not going to be intoxicated. Look, um, but yeah, that was that was a funny moment. But I sat down. You know, part of this uh, the amendment when it came up. Um, in the in the Senate, it, it the the vote was whether to table the amendment or not. Um, you spoke about it. Senator Grooms got up and and gave an impassioned plea that the heartbeat bill was what we needed to pass because it's what we could do at the moment. It's the, the political will is there for that at this moment. And so then the motion was made to table, which would have would have killed it. Well, all, the Democrats voted to not table the motion which means that they voted for the amendment to go forward. And so all these Democrats are voting for a bill that would protect life beginning at conception. So I went over and I sat down next to Senator Hutto, and I said, Senator, I said, I'm, I'm Tony Beam with uh, South Carolina Basketball. He said, yeah, I know, I know you. I know you are. I said, yeah, we talked before. But I said, I just, you know what? I just wanted to thank you because I had no idea that the Democrat Party in South Carolina – had become pro-life to the point that you, being one of the leaders, would vote to protect life beginning at conception, and but you did that with that, you know. With this, and he looked at me, and I looked at him, and it was that moment where I was going to see who smiled first, and he smiled a little bit, and he said, "Well, that might have been a procedure." I said, "Yeah, I, th- I thought it might have been a political procedure." <laughs> So, but I mean, see, at least he at least he understood it was a procedure. I'm getting attacked by some people. Uh, it's, it's funny that you had that exchange, but I'm getting attacked by some people. Who say, well, Kimbrell voted against the conception ban, and the Democrats voted for it. It's like, okay, doesn't that tell you something? I mean, right. if, if, if it was right. unanimous Democratic support, there wasn't a single Democrat that voted against it. Right, and only a few Republicans did. Not, and a few of my uh, Republicans who voted for that came over like, oh, you know, you need to get with us on this conservative side. I said, uh, y'all just voted with every Democrat in the room, and that ought to tell you what they're doing. They're trying to kill the heartbeat bill. They want to stay a 20-week state. Exactly. And it was just it's just amazing that people can't see that. Yeah. Well, and, and that's why I had that exchange with Senator Hutto. I wanted him to know that the people on the outside that are watching this, that we know what's going on here. And I wanted to use that example because I, I want to support you in this. I want people to understand what you're trying to do. It's not about you, – you would gladly, and you said this from the floor, you would gladly support life protected beginning at conception. But what's going to happen if we don't get the heartbeat bill passed for the next two years, we're going to have 24,000 babies that die at least because we're already at 1,000 a month before we can get to an election that can change the makeup of the Senate that would allow something more than the heartbeat bill to get through. And that's just that's just where we are. Um, I don't well, like exactly it. That's exactly right. I mean, you're 100% right. That's exactly right. And my message to the House is very clear. I've been talking to House colleagues. You've already got some folks over in the House uh, who have decided to, for whatever reason, that their own personal vindication is more important than saving babies. And they're saying, oh, we're going to take this bill from the Senate, we're going to shove the Human, Prote- Human Life Protection Act onto there and force the Senate to vote. I will make, we'll embarrass the Senate. Okay, I don't care if you want to embarrass the Senate. Go ahead. I mean, there are plenty of senators I'm embarrassed of and how they handled this, all right? 
But uh, if you want to take that position to play political brinkmanship, you're literally doing it at the cost of 24,000 babies' lives. And I'm tired of being told that I have blood on my hands because I don't vote for this amendment over and over that can't pass whenever I'm trying to actually cut the rate by 60 to 70 or greater than that percent. Well, uh, I, I, you know, if you want to talk about blood on your hands, if you want to play political games and you want to prove that you're smarter than everybody else or you're tactically better than everybody else or you're purer than everybody else, go ahead. Go ahead and fly the flag as the ship sinks. See, my attitude is let's keep the ship afloat. Some people are happy to nail their colors to the mast and go under waving like a moron as it goes underwater. It's like, let's save as many lives as we can. I don't understand it. It's not hard. I support the Human Life Protection Act in the House. I will vote for it if it ever gets to the floor of the Senate. But if it gets attached to the heartbeat bill, it's dead. The heartbeat bill is dead, and the HPLA won't pass. And then we're a 20-week state. And I'm sorry I get mad about this, but I get mad when people play Russian roulette with the lives of innocent kids. Well, look, I'm not going to try to tell, I, and, and, and I know you want, we disagree about this some, I'm not going to try to tell the House what to do because I think people over in the House are, are acting, a lot of them, on personal convention, conviction and principle. And the South Carolina Baptist Convention position is let's protect life beginning at conception. I get that. But I have a question. If you're going to say that the blood of innocent babies is on the hands of people that don't support the Human Life Protection Act, where do we put the blood of the 24,000 babies that die between now and 2025 because we decided that we would rather have that than to have a bill that would protect 80% of them? That's my question. Well, that, I, and, and, I, that's, and that's the right question. That's my question. And, you know, and I do support the Human Life Protection Act. I know you do. Bill. Yes, you do. I just don't support it being added to this bill because right. I know what's going to happen in the Senate. I've watched this movie before, and we already have six, six Republicans right now who would join the Democrats to kill that bill. Right. If they add it to the heartbeat right. bill, you don't have enough to overcome a filibuster. It's over. My friend, thank you. Have a wonderful weekend with your family. God bless you, and I'll see you next week. God bless you. Thank you.